We're going chapter by chapter through the New Testament. We've come to the third chapter of Colossians, and I encourage you to keep these outlines as kind of a commentary on the Word of God, and I know that many of you have done that over the years, and I commend you for it. If you like to take notes, there are other things that can be written down that would be of help to you, I believe, in the evening just ahead. Colossians chapter 3. We point out in the introduction, this is the practical section of the letter. It's really the second half, the first two chapters being kind of theological, dealing with the spiritual aspects of Paul's letter to the Colossians and the last two chapters, the practical. And being the practical person that I am, I like these two chapters because it tells me how to live tells me what to do. So as we look at this outline, you'll see the importance of it broken down into these sections, the first one being the first 11 verses. Now, to conserve time, I'm not going to read these verses with you one after the other, but we'll be calling you to the various verses and the important points as we move along. So have your Bible open. It will be important that you have the reference there in front of you. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. We have heard that verse many, many times in our life. Have we let it sink in? Seek those things which are above. In other words, let your earthly practice follow your heavenly position. The practical aspect of Christianity, living your life for Christ on planet Earth. Seek those things which are above. That is what we're supposed to do while we're walking this Earth. And I ask you tonight if that is your major goal. I ask, the, ask you if that is the priority item of your life. That's the way Paul begins this practical se section. Seek those things which are above. Then as we move into the heart of this lesson, verse 3 brings us how that is to be done. You died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, if you're going to seek those things which are above you're going to have to die to sin. Some weeks ago, a little fellow about this high was being interviewed on a national television program. All of you know who he is. His name is Mickey Rooney. I don't know how many wives Mickey Rooney has had but I do know from his own witness that his life has been pretty raunchy. This little fellow being interviewed on television said, and I quote, I don't mean to sound ecclesiastical, but recently I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and now my past is gone. End of quote. Now that's pretty significant. Now that's what Paul is saying when he says, you died. Mickey Rooney is saying, I died. My past is gone. And with a past like I understand he has, that's a remarkable statement indeed. My past is gone. Now you look at the fourth verse, when Christ, who is our life, appears. Just take that part now. Christ, who is our life. This new life is nothing less or nothing else than the life of Jesus Christ. This makes it believable. This makes it possible. This makes it attainable. This being dead to the old man, to the old life, to the old system, 
There is not a person that hears my voice tonight that cannot attain to this newness because it's not I that liveth but Christ that liveth in me. You see it there in verse 4. When Christ who is our life, here is the answer to the dilemma of a lot of Christians. A lot of people who have to confess every Sunday horrible deeds. They don't seem to be able to make it very well between Sundays. It is the problem of the confessional where we find it difficult to keep climbing and keep attaining what Paul is talking about here. We stumble, we fall. We become very susceptible to the germs of this world, spiritually speaking. The answer, the antidote's right here. Christ who is our life. Christ who is our life. Do we have that concept fixed in this moment? Christ lives in me. And if Christ lives in me, then I can accomplish anything that I'm supposed to accomplish. I can overcome the devil. I can live victoriously. I can look sin in the face and say, I am triumphing over you because it is Christ who lives in me and I have his power, his resurrected power. There it is in just a sentence. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then he comes back to the theme of death. Therefore, put to death your members. Then he comes to telling us what these things are that are so damnable in our life. Look at them with me. Put to death these things. Fornication. What is fornication? It is sexual immorality. That's what the word implies. It's sexual immorality of any kind. It takes in all facets of sexual misconduct. There is altogether too much of this in Christendom today. Sexual immorality. We are not living by the rules. We are dealing day by day with altogether too much of this fornication where people are allowing the worldly system to get hold of them and it will choke them and destroy them if we don't put it to death. There's only one way I know to put it to death and that's to do what the great Joseph did in the Old Testament when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. He ran! And he didn't run to it, he ran from it. Why are we running to it instead of from it? We have all kinds of opportunity to run to it today. We can get these videos at these rental places, I guess, for a buck, 250. I see these signs all over. I have yet to rent one personally. I just don't have that kind of time nor interest but I understand there are others that do. And who in the world will ever know? We fantasize, we go through all kinds of things, sexual immorality. All kinds of opportunity, all kinds of possibility today, but if you're here with a desire for Jesus Christ, it is not Christ's way. And you're to put it to death. You're to crucify it. You're to nail it to a cross and be done with it. You're to have nothing to do with it. There are young people here tonight. Young people, you're to have nothing to do with it. No matter what the crowd says, no matter what your peers say, no matter what everybody else is doing, and as David Reber says, everybody is not doing it until I do it, and I'm not doing it. And that's good sense. 
Sexual immorality is the first thing Paul says we have to put to death. What's the second? Uncleanness. You know what it's translated? Dirty-mindedness. That's what it's translated to mean, dirty-mindedness. We're living in a polluted world. People's minds are polluted. They're dirty. They're filthy. There is dirty-mindedness all around us, dirty jokes, dirty books, things that are suggested to us every day that come out of the sewer. What are we to do with it? We're to put it to death. We're to nail it to the cross. And remember what James says in his wonderful epistle, that sin first comes into the mind. You think it, and then it moves to become an act, and the act produces death physical many times, and certainly spiritual all the time. So friends, here is Paul's admonition, practical admonition to the church. You say, Pastor, shouldn't you be preaching this message downtown somewhere? No, it's to the church. You can't tell them to put away dirty-mindedness because that's what they are, dirty. They have to become converted first. He's talking to people that are supposedly converted. And he says, you've got to put to death dirty-mindedness. You cannot entertain dirty thoughts and survive. So I come saying it to you in the 20th century, almost 2,000 years removed from the Apostle Paul. I say the same thing to you. Put off dirty-mindedness. Nail it to the cross. Put it to death. That's practical. And I pray that some of you will determine to do it tonight. Remember what Jesus said when he was expounding on the commandments. He said, you may not have ever committed adultery physically, but you can commit adultery in your heart by lusting after another. That's dirty-mindedness. And Paul says, put it to death. The third word is passion in this fifth verse. And that means uncontrolled passion. Now, all of us have passion. And that's normal. It's natural. It's part of our makeup. But the word that is key here is the word uncontrolled. And that's what we see in the world today, uncontrolled passion. Why all of these sex murders? Why all of this stealing of children to put them into child pornography. It's uncontrolled passion causing us no end of difficulty. And what is it many times within the confines of religion where marriages are busting up and people are swapping partners? It's uncontrolled passion. All too often that's the cause and that's the source. What are we to do with it? Put it to death. You must die. It has to be crucified. Evil desire is the fourth. Look at Romans 8.13 for just a moment, if you will. Back a few pages in your Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Paul said, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're dealing with the statement here of evil desire. If you kill the deeds of sinful human nature, you will live. Have you done it? Now some say, I have received Christ into my heart. That's great. But that does not necessarily take away from you these passions and these evil desires that Paul's writing about, obviously because he's writing about them to believers. You have to constantly stay on top of the flesh by dying. And here again he says, put to death 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I ask you, are you doing that? Have you done that in your life? It's the only way I know we're going to survive in this wicked environment called earth. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 61 in the Old Testament. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Hallelujah. There's a glorious and marvelous statement. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's what we need. We need to change clothes. We need to get off the clothes of unrighteousness and evil passion and evil desire, and we need to put on the robes of righteousness. Now, there's another list in this third chapter of Colossians. Begins in the eighth verse. You must also put off, and notice how often the words put off or put to death or put on appear in this passage of Scripture. Now also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with the deeds, with his deeds. Amazing how many things that Paul refers to here in this passage of Scripture. Do I need to touch on them with you at all? Put off anger. Oh, but you say, it's always been in my family. Then somebody in your family better read Colossians 3. Put it off. You've got to control that just as much as you have to control the other aspects of your life. God is not pleased with our unrighteous anger. Now, there is an anger that's righteous, the anger against sin, the anger against all that is happening in our world that's destroying the foundations. That's good to be angry. Jesus was angry when he went into the temple and he saw them taking all the place that was to be for prayer and turning it into a place of changing money and selling all kinds of things in the house of God. He was angry, but it was a righteous anger but we're to put off an unrighteous anger and to have no part of it. Parents who beat their children in anger, people who react out in the business place in anger and destroy people with words as well as actions, put it off. Wrath, malice, the concept of holding grudges, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. It means cursing, filthy talk. That's what it means, cursing, filthy talk. What's your language like? Have you allowed the Holy Spirit to come and control that aspect of your life? We need to listen to ourselves sometimes. We need to ask ourselves, would Jesus be pleased with the way I speak? Not only the very words, but the tone of our speech. Is it Christ-honoring? Have we put off the evil of cursing and of filthy language? That's part of the new creature concept that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Now, before we move to the second part of this chapter, let me remind you that in the setting of Colossians, the Middle East, it would be well to be reminded that Oriental Greek and Roman religions said little or nothing about personal holiness. 
There was nothing in those religions that was tailored and altered and disciplined. Orgies accompanied those religions. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A man could bring his sacrifices, say his prayers, and go away from the altar to commit terrible sins, and that's exactly what they did. Here is a new way, Christianity. You cannot do that. You cannot come and say your prayers and make your sacrifices and go live like the devil or live like the rest of the world. You have to live like Christ. That's the difference. And that's why Paul nails this thing down for us here in this passage of Scripture because he's dealing with people whose mindset was, I can go through the religious forms and then go live like I please. I can beat my wife. I can mistreat my children. I can be unfair to my employees. No, sir, when you come to Christ, you put that to death and you live Christ's life on this earth. That's what he's saying. God help us to come back to that essence of holiness. The new life within demands a new life without. And folks, we've got to remember that. Let his life show through you day by day. Put off the old sins as you would put off a filthy garment and put on, as Isaiah 61.10 says, robes of righteousness. Do what Mickey Rooney did. Put it off. I love that statement, and let me repeat it one more time. I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and now my past is gone. Walk a new way. Live a new standard. Have a new master. Personal purity. Holiness is still a good word. Sanctification is still a good word. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And remember, friend, every deed, every act, every word will come under judgment. So it's not what other men say, what other men think. It's what God says and what God thinks that's really important in personal purity. Second point from verses 12 through seven, verse 12 through 17, we are to make Christ preeminent in Christian fellowship. In him there are no barriers, we are one in him. He is all in all. Christ preeminent in our lives, then we will be able to get along with others for his glory. Verse 15 talks about Christ. So working in our lives that there will be an umpire, the peace of God, umpiring, ruling in our hearts, to which we also were called in one body and to be thankful. Now, in verse 12, which is where this section begins, you find these words again, put on, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Now, what are we to put on? I've got to balance what I've just said now by the other side, put on. Put on tender mercies. What are tender mercies? Well, to illustrate, it would be like Mother Teresa. You maybe have not been in Calcutta. I have been there. I have seen the work of Mother Teresa. I would not want the work of Mother Teresa. Anyway, it just doesn't sound right. Father Cole, I just can't get used to that idea. But Mother Teresa sounds right. How they pick up off the streets and out of any poor dwelling, people who are dying, bring them to her hostels where they are ministered to and cared for as a mother would care for a baby, fed, nursed, assisted until their life goes, hopefully, in a peaceful environment. You cannot stand looking at the ministry of Mother Teresa and say anything but tender mercies. Willing hands to serve. That's what tender mercies imply. What is it? It's Christ living on earth through us in tender mercies. 
Have you checked on your neighbor that had to go to the hospital to see if the children were cared for? Tender mercies. Put on tender mercies. Have you checked with the family whose father or husband left them, just walked out? See if they have enough to eat? Tender mercies. Have you gotten to your sewing machine to put together pants, shirts for our little ones, perhaps somewhere in your neighborhood where there is not enough and they're moving down the street in somewhat raggedy clothing? Have you taken it upon yourself as one of Christ to show tender mercies? See, that's what Christianity is all about. It ought not to have to be that people would be calling the church office and saying, can you send somebody? We ought to be so tuned in and so alert to what's happening out there that out of the bowels of mercy of our own Christian experience, we are ministering to them in a tender, merciful way. It's the way it was meant to be. Second word is kindness. Still a good word. Kindness, goodness for the well-being of another. I was almost shocked when we took the check that you so graciously gave to Pastor Gene Riggs of Calvary Temple on Florin Road after his surgery and near death You'll remember the church was moving his hospital hospitalization insurance to another company and got caught in the middle, and he had no coverage. When I discovered this, I brought it to your attention, and on a Sunday morning, you gave $7,150 for his need. I was overwhelmed, but blessed. And five of the pastoral staff went together to his home while he was still recovering and gave him that check, and he broke down and wept like a baby. Here's what I was so shocked with. He said, Pastor Cole, I had lost faith in the ministry. There seemed to be nobody that cared. It was kind of like I'm out here all by myself trying to do this work, and other pastors seem to be taking people out of my church. Nobody ever took time to call or come by. There seemed to be no love, and I had just spoken to my wife the other day, said, and it seemed to me like there wasn't any kindness left. I saw him again this past week, and I want to tell you that Gene Riggs' spirit has changed. He believes there is kindness. He believes there is goodness, that this body of people has ministered to him in a kind way, and he can't get over it, and he's telling it everywhere he goes. He told it to the Minister's Institute in Northern California a couple weeks ago to all of the ministers there what this congregation did to him in kindness, and it's restored his faith in humanity. I praise God for that. And I haven't heard from one person it hurt to give that little bit of kindness. I feel stronger because we had a part in it. Hallelujah. But friends, let that be multiplied. Let that grow. Let it become not just a little trickle, but a mighty tributary. Kindness. The third word is humility or humbleness of mind. You know where the word humility comes from? It comes from the root humus. And what's humus? Just plain old earth. It means of the earth. Humility. Confidence in the power that holds them, not in the power they hold. Humility. It doesn't mean weakness. It means you just get down to the grassroots level. It means you model what Jesus taught us, who humbled himself and became as a servant that he might gain the souls of many. Plain old dirt, humus. 
confidence in the one who holds you, not in what you hold. Humility. Why do the rich become proud? Because they have confidence in what they hold. What is the message of Christ to the church? Have confidence in the one who holds you, not in what you hold. That's a good definition of humility. It doesn't mean you have to be a Mickey Mouse or a Minnie Mouse. It means with confidence you can live, with confidence you can speak, knowing who holds you, and willing to stoop to any level to exalt Jesus Christ and to make him known. That's the message to the church and how to be in Christian fellowship. Fourth word is meekness or gentleness. It means self-control. Because of being God-controlled, we become self-controlled. We don't fly off the handle. That's meekness or gentleness. We're not apt to taking axe handles and beating people with the axe handle. I had a man in the church who did that to his wife. Claimed to be a Christian. She ended up in my office with so many bruises, I couldn't believe my eyes when she showed me her bruises. Now, that's when I got Christian anger. It was the last time that man ever did that to her. You cannot be a follower of Christ without meekness or gentleness, self-control, being God-controlled. We're losing it, folks. There's so much anger around us, I'm afraid that many times we just think it's the norm. We can just fly off the handle and... If it isn't of God, God forgives us, so it's my temperament. No, not a Christian. You are of Christ, and Christ is not that way. Christ was controlled, and therefore you must be. You have no excuse. You need to get to the altar. You need to lay it down and die to it. Fifth, patience. Do I need to expound on patience? Lord, give me patience and hurry up. We want everything instantly, coffee, tea, potatoes, pudding, and all that God has promised. We want it just like that, but it doesn't work. And we want other people to just bow down and do it the way we want, when we want it. But that's not Christ's way. You have to put that to death. You have to let patience come through in your relationships. Fellowship comes out of patience. Be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. Makes a pretty big button. If you'd spell it out, it'd be about that big. Be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. So they just put the first letters, B, T, whatever. I can't even make a horn work tonight, so how can I figure that one out? <laughs> Number six, forbearing and forgiving. Forbearing and forgiving. How would you explain forbearing? I think one illustration I could give is how people sometimes cut people down by their silence. I get so angry with men sometimes who won't talk. Their wife wants to enter into conversation, plans, and they're silent. You know what you're doing? You're destroying them with a lack of forbearance, yet you're not saying a word. And we can get kind of prideful and say, I didn't fight back. I didn't say anything. That's the problem. You need to forbear and say, well, I don't quite understand what it is you want or what you want to do, but let's talk about it. Reverence for one another. We forbear and we forgive. Grudges have to go. Revenge is out of the question. You forbear and you forgive. And anybody who has been forgiven ought to forgive. 
wedding yesterday, I said to the couple in the ceremony, now remember, as you take this communion, you are expressing through this act that you are forgiven. As you leave this altar, you must express the same thing to one another throughout your married life. Forgiven people always forgive. And it's what makes harmony in a marriage. What also brings harmony in the church. What are we talking about? In Christian fellowship, that's what's manifest. The last word in this section is love. Love, verse 14. But above all these things, put on love. Put it right at the top of the list. L-O-V-E, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love endures. Love never ends. I had to say that to a couple the other day. I said, does love end? They said, no. I said, what's your problem then? It's easy to quote the Bible. It's another thing to put it into practice, isn't it? Did you love him 20 years ago? Oh, yes. Did you love her? Oh, yes. Then does love end? No. Love. Well, what's the matter with you then? Well, I don't love her. No, you just said love doesn't end. Well, what I mean is, no, what you really mean is that there's just a lot of things that have gotten in the way. A lot of the things that this passage of Scripture speaks to, and you've lost fellowship. So go back and start over again. And above all, put on love. I love you in spite of you. Because that's exactly the way God loves us, in spite of us. So I've got to love Marianne the same way. And she has to love me the same way. <laughs> Whoever that was, I want to see you after service. <laughs> I think I've got them identified. <laughs> but it's true. Not I love you if. That's not the way. I love you in spite of. That's the way. From the cross, Jesus said, I forgive you. In spite of what you've done, I love you. I forgive you. And that is what Paul speaks of in this passage so strongly that we might have fellowship and walk in unity and in harmony. The third section is about the home. In the first place, our Christian faith should go to work in the home. My goodness, it's getting late, isn't it? If I were sitting back here and another person was preaching, I'd be so nervous about now, I'd die. But I, I don't feel a bit of nervousness right now. <laughs> You're the ones that have to suffer right now. Huh? You looked like you were so happy. I didn't know what time it was. Well, let me hurry to a conclusion. The home is where it all starts. Let them learn first to show piety at home. Verse 18. Wives, submit. Verse 19, husbands love. Verse 20, children obey. 21, fathers don't provoke. There's a pretty good outline right there. You want to go home and work on something? Try that. Wives submit, husbands love, children obey, fathers don't provoke. Now, if you want another passage of Scripture to study for that, look at 1 Peter chapter 3. And study it carefully because it has a marvelous outline that will go along with Colossians 3. Verses 1 through 6, wives. Verse 7, men, husbands, dwell with them. Verse 8, all of you. <laughs> Finally, all of you be of one mind. See, he gets everybody in this third chapter of 1 Peter. I don't know why he gives six verses to women and one to men. That seems to be a mystery to me, but it does talk about chaste conduct and adornment and ornaments and things of that sort. I just 
point that out. <laughs> and one verse to men, likewise you husbands, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Doesn't sound all that complicated, doesn't it? Does it? My wife may have some of those tendencies, but I love her, and we share happily together. And that word submission doesn't mean to be kicked in the teeth. That word means to be sharing equally. But there has to be a head or you have a monstrosity. Anything with two heads is a freak. So God has put the divine order. God is over Christ, Christ is over man, and man is over the wife. Divine order. But that doesn't give the man license for anything. He has ample instruction on what he is supposed to do, and the primary challenge to a man is to love his wife. You will never find anywhere in the Bible where it says, wise, really, to love your husband because it's accepted that that is not so difficult for her as it is for the man to love her. That's a fact. Now let me tell you why. It's not that we're so lovable. It's that you're so loving. That's right. You thought I wasn't going to get out of that, didn't you? That's Bible. The wife's tendency is to love. She doesn't have to be convinced, cajoled. That's her nature. On all of life, you see that in the woman. But the man, he's macho. And to show affection, oh, that lessens his macho ability. But if you're going to follow Colossians 3, man, you're going to have to put to death that particular idea and concept. Because God says you love your wife. Now that's one of the most important things I've probably ever said from this pulpit. To bring harmony, unity, and peace, which is what Paul is writing about here and what Peter speaks about in his letter to the church. What blessings would come to our homes if each member of the family would say, I live to please Christ, and then... I live to please my family, to share in unity as these scriptures indicate we should do. Question to ask, does Christ have preeminence in our homes? Final section is about your daily work outside the family. Truths to employers and employees. The employee is to work to honor and please Christ. Verse 22 says, Not for eye service as men pleasers, whether the boss is watching or not. You have a code of conduct. You've put to death the laziness. You've put to death the dishonesty, the cheating, the conniving of this world the extra minutes on the breaks and the lunch hours you hope to get by with. You're robbing if you do that as an employer, employee. And Paul says you've got to live the Christ life where you work. And then as an employer, you have to be honest and fair with those you employ. Verse 23 is the capstone of this whole thing. I've left it for last. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Oh, that would make things so much better in every facet of life if we did it as to the Lord and not to men. 
Lord, I'm going to do this to please you. I don't feel like it in the natural, but I'm going to do it to please you because I know it's right. Man said to me the other day, I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Just the other day. Now, what can you do with somebody like that? When the Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. It would make life so much more a blessing. It would take the pain out, and it would make us relate to one another so much better. Closing verse. He who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done. And there is no partiality. Shocking. Made me think of Proverbs 15:3. God beholds the evil and the good. His eyes are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God sees everything. And Paul says in the last verse, he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he does. God has called us to church on this Sunday night to deal with these wrongs, to take care of these things that are causing us malnutrition of life, bringing us into sickness and spiritual disease. We have a marvelous outline here in Colossians 3, how to handle life and handle it practically. If we will just Follow what God, by his Holy Spirit, directed the Apostle Paul to write. How many of you would raise a hand and say, I'll make an effort, Pastor. Let me see. Come on. I'll make an effort. I'll make an effort. God helping me. Praise the Lord. It's a lot of heavy stuff. But if we'll look at it with our hearts, follow it with our hearts, God will be glorified and our lives are going to be richer and better. Let's stand together. I brought a letter to the pulpit with me tonight. I have a file of letters in my desk. Maybe some of you have written. This particular Individual rights, I'm 24 years old, but I truly feel like I'm 80. I've lived a very turbulent, fast-paced life, and at the ripe old age of 23, I was ready to die. I felt there wasn't any use living any longer. I had a very bad drug addiction for two years and a drinking problem besides. My marriage was a sham, and I didn't see my family at all, even though they lived only minutes away. I had no real friends to turn to, only people who were as drugged as I was, and they weren't interested in helping me. There are more details that I could list for you that would help you understand my attitude towards myself, why I wanted to end my disgusting existence, but that's not why I'm writing to you. I feel compelled to express my love to you for saving my soul. I am now a Christian and part of your large family. I feel different than I ever have before because now I know Jesus. It's so beautiful and exciting, I tell everyone. I've asked Jesus to be the ruler of my life. Now there's the key. There's Colossians 3. I have asked Jesus to be the ruler of my life. And now, get this, no problem that I have seems to be above what I can handle. I just talk it over with him. Now, this is a new babe talking quite maturely. I am together with my family once again, a very happy reunion. I feel like God is giving me a second chance, and I'm doing the best I can to make it into something better. God has truly blessed me with an exciting job with good pay. The story behind that is yet another miracle. I've kicked my drug habit, not an easy task, and my drinking problem. Oh, Pastor Cole, I could go on forever. I know God has a plan for me. And he says, God bless you, sir. I pray for you every night. 
I truly look forward to church every Sunday. Thank you for your guidance. Hallelujah. That's what can happen when you follow the plan. God puts things together. God makes impossible situations possible. So tonight we, in our bulletin, titled this particular message, Living Up to What Christ Has Done For You. You see, it's all sitting there like a beautifully wrapped package, but it's no good unless we take hold of it. And I ask you now in the closing moments of this service to take hold of the package. Wherever you are failing and wherever you are hurting and wherever you see the danger signs creeping in, I want you to deal with that tonight quickly and with God's power available to meet the need. I don't know any better chorus for us to sing than I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And as we begin to sing, I want those of you whom God has been speaking to tonight about areas of your life, maybe your relationship at home, maybe your relationship in the church, Maybe some of these powerful words that Paul inserted in Colossians 3 about immorality, sexual perversion, some of these strong statements that you know you're fighting and you need help in. Come, don't be ashamed. Cut them off tonight. Radical surgery is necessary. It's going to rob you of eternal life. It's better to enter into life maimed than to go out with all of your members, but perish and die without hope and without God. So I want you to move quickly to this altar, and I want you to bow your knee in God's presence, and I want you to repent of whatever it is you need to repent of, and I want you to receive the strength of God, the help of Christ. You know who you are as we have ministered God's Word tonight. I want you to come as we sing. Don't hesitate a moment.